Hello and welcome to the Future of Work Hub's In Conversation With podcast. I'm Lucy Lewis, a partner in Lewis Silkin's employment team. And in this podcast series, I'll be hosting exclusive discussions with innovators, business leaders and thought leaders to explore their perspective on what the future of work holds. We know that the pandemic has accelerated longer term societal, economic, technological trends. And we've got this unique opportunity, a once in a generation challenge to rethink who, how, what and where we work. But whilst the pandemic has been a significant catalyst for immediate change, it's only one of the many drivers that are changing the world of work. And today we're going to focus on one of the Future of Work Hub's megatrends, technology, also sometimes referred to as digital disruption. And there can't be a better guest speaker to discuss this with than Dr. Carl Benedict Frey. Um, Carl is Oxford Martin City Fellow at the University of Oxford. He's also the programme lead for the Future of Work. So it's fair to say that he is a global thought leader on all things Future of Work. Carl also co-authored a landmark study that the future of employment, how susceptible are jobs to computerization? And he's the author of a recent book, The Technology Trap. And I'm going to be talking to Carl about all of this and hopefully much more. So, Carl, I'm delighted to welcome you. Thank you very much for joining me. I, I wanted to start, it's going back a bit, but to start by asking you about that research back in 2013 and the estimation in that that about 47% of jobs in the US, about 40% in Europe are vulnerable to technological displacement in the, the next 20 years, the 20 years from that study. And I wondered if you could start just by telling us a little bit about how you did that research and what led you to those conclusions. Sure. So at the time, I think it's important to remember there weren't many studies uh, on this. Now there are plenty. But uh, in 2013, we uh, heard a lot about various anecdotes, like machines being able to do uh, medical diagnostics better than humans, machines being able to do translation work better than humans, and potentially even algorithms being able to drive cars and other things. And, and what occurred to me and Michael Osborne, who is the co-author, of that paper at the time is that we had all of these anecdotes and examples with very little systematic analysis or um, assessment of uh, which jobs that are likely to be affected by this more broadly. Um, and in the economics literature at the time, the um, consensus was that machines are very good at routine, repetitive activities that can easily be specified in computer code and therefore readily automated. But what we were seeing happening in machine learning was that the potential scope of automation extended far uh, beyond uh, routine um, activities. And so what we were trying to do in that paper was first of all, developing some sort of conceptual framework for understanding what machines can uh, and cannot do. And at the time, we realized that it's quite hard to draw you know, very clear uh, boundaries. And it's actually easier to sort of turn the question around and ask, what can't machines do? And uh, what are sort of the key bottlenecks to automation? And uh, what we identified were 
three key domains. So complex social interactions being the first, creative tasks being the second, and uh, perception and manipulation tasks that sort of center on interacting with irregular objects or more sort of unstructured environments more broadly. What we did in the second step was trying to analyze using a database of 702 occupations to predict the relative susceptibility to automation of these uh, 702 occupations. Thank you. One of the things that um, I wonder if you can help us with as outsiders, because you, you talked a bit about there weren't very many studies at the time, and, and clearly this study was absolutely a, a watershed moment on the debate about automation, and since then there have been others. And one of the things we see when we read those studies is there's sometimes quite significant variances in the in the percentage um, risk to jobs. And is that about looking at displacement versus, if you like, net job losses that obviously technological advancement creates jobs as well as displaces others? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So obviously in this study, we're only looking at what's you know potentially automatable from a technological capabilities point of view. So we say nothing about net effects on employment in this study. And obviously, you know, a variety of factors are relevant to decisions of whether a business wants to automate or not, right? So when Nissan produces cars in Japan, it relies heavily on robots. When it does the same thing in India, it relies more on cheap labor. Uh, legislation plays a role as well. So. You know, even if Google Translate was absolutely perfect, uh, for certain documents, you still need, you know, certification by a translator. So unless you certify Google Translate, it's not going to replace the jobs um, of uh, translators and so on, right? So this is merely an assessment of what's technologically possible um, to automate. And obviously there is a variety of studies asking slightly different questions. As you mentioned, some studies actually try to predict you know, how many jobs that will have been replaced by uh, 2030 and how many new jobs that have be- will have been created by technology by that time. Um, and I think that's absolutely just impossible to do. So uh, personally, I don't pay that much attention to those type of studies. But then there are also studies that try to do roughly and what we do, which is sort of looking at the potential scope of automation. And they come to some what different conclusions as well. And it's it's hard to, you know, uh, compare these studies because they have slightly different methodologies. They use slightly different data sets. Um, and as a consequence of that, we have this variety of estimates um, that point in different directions. And, you know, we can go into detail more about, you know, the vices and uh, virtues of, of, of different specific studies. But I think that's broadly speaking what explains these differences. That's really helpful. And I guess the, um, the blunt question is, do we all need to be preparing for a world where there just aren't enough jobs to go around? Or actually, when we look at this through a future of work lens, should we really be focusing on skills and the skills that we need for the jobs in the future? Well, right now, there's very little to suggest that we're entering a, a world of widespread unemployment, right? I mean, we have labor shortages, wages are on the rise, 
obviously if we enter a recession this year we will be at the very uh, different stage and all of a sudden you know automation anxiety may have a revival right i mean if you look at this historically there tends to be more machine anxiety when people have bad outside job options which they tend to do during the recession so for example during the industrial revolution there were the luddite riots we all heard about those uh, but there were particularly many machinery uh, riots during the years of the continental blockade when napoleon disrupted trade with britain and people faced worse, worsening outside job options so i think that is something uh, that it's important uh, to bear in mind. But yes, I do think you're right that uh, focusing on skills is uh, very important to allow people to better transition into new jobs and industries. The difficult thing is obviously with that we don't always know what the new jobs uh, are going to be. But I think a second point is also um, often getting missed is that you know new jobs tend to often emerge in very different places than where they are being automated away. If we look at Britain, we see a lot of new job creation in the service sector and particularly uh, in London. Um, but at the same time, we see where old manufacturing jobs have disappeared. Um, that you know often new jobs haven't emerged in those places to replace the old ones. So we need not just mobility between different occupations and industry we need also mobility between uh, different geographies and unfortunately that sort of mobility in terms of moving place has declined uh, over the decades and i think that's also part of the reasons why we see these pockets of uh, unemployment and um, which are still there one of the favorite lines from my book is that if you put one hand in the freezer and the other on the stove, you should feel quite comfortable on average. But obviously, we know from experience that that's not the case, right? And the same can be said about labor market, right? In all manufacturing cities where jobs have been automated away, so persistent unemployment and non-employment, so deteriorating public services as a consequence, so increases in crime as a consequence of that as well. Whereas at the same time, if you move to the coastal areas, you see a lot of new jobs and thriving communities in the Bay Area and in New York City and Washington and other places as well. And actually, it's useful. It takes me to our next question because we, we touched a little bit on the, the impact of the pandemic and the study that we started talking about is unbelievably now um, nine years ago. And in that nine year period, we've, we've seen automation capabilities particularly evolve really fast, um, machine learning, AI, some of the things that you've touched on. And then, of course, we met the pandemic and and that's been a huge accelerant for change in in lots of ways. But I wondered if you had particular thoughts on how the pandemic has impacted um, automation and, and technological change. Yeah, so we actually don't have that good data to be able to tell, but there are clearly a lot of examples of labor shortages spurring automation during the pandemic. So, for example, Italian winemakers who you know used to be able to rely on migrant labor uh, for picking grapes are investing more heavily in automated uh, grape pick pickers. We see similar trends in the restaurant industry so there's been a lot of venture capital going into restaurant automation startups and um, over the past two years 
and we've seen more investment going into self-service checkouts. We've seen, you know, QBots being introduced in hospitals to deliver food and medicine and allow for social distancing. So we see various examples of technology adoption that would uh, presumably not have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic. But at the same uh, time, if we look at more complex automation tasks that involve artificial intelligence, we also see that projects that require bringing in new expertise, getting the new IT systems to sync with the old IT systems, those kind of more complicated projects, at least at the beginning of the pandemic, were mostly um, a hard no, but it's possibly something more companies uh, are looking at now as people are gradually coming back uh, to the office and in response to the labor shortages that we are seeing. At the same time, I think it's also important to distinguish between technology adoption and innovation. And my reading of the literature, uh, even though we are now in the age of Zoom and all of that, is that place still matters, right? Silicon Valley is at the forefront of digital technology, but it's still highly clustered. Even if we look historically, you know, knowledge industries have always clustered since the days of Renaissance Florence. And that's because, you know, we benefit from sporadic interactions and the knowledge spillovers that happen when people meet in, uh, uh, in spontaneous ways. And we can see this more broadly through a variety of studies that cities with more walkable streets and restaurants and bars also have higher rates um, of innovation. And I think that part uh, is not going away. After all, nobody lives in cyberspace, although Mark Zuckerberg wants us to uh, live there. Um, but, you know, as of today, our interactions in the digital world or digital sphere very much mirror our interactions in the physical world. Uh, you know, 80% of people's emails are to people sitting in the same building. And um, so uh, our physical networks still matter a lot. And those networks are very important for innovation. And at a time where a lot of people are working remotely, I think innovation and creativity is suffering as a consequence. That, that's really interesting because it's one of the things that I, I wanted to to talk to you about. When we talk about the future of work, um, there's a lot of material, as you say, but one of the really interesting reports, for me at least, has been the report produced by the Oxford Martin School recently. I know it was in conjunction with City about the roles that City have to play alongside remote working, some of what you're talking about now. And it's particularly interesting in the context of you know, a lot of press reports about um, coastal locations seeing house prices rocket and we're starting to see more press reports about people actually gravitating back to cities. But one of the things that I I was really fascinated by in that report was it it highlights a study that that tells us that during the the prohibition against alcohol in the 1920s in the US, it's the, the disruption to people's social networks saw a reduction in patenting, I think something like 18% reduction in patenting. And it talks about the importance of social contacts for innovation. Um, And I wondered if you were willing to share a couple more thoughts, expand a little bit on what you were saying about that, because I think businesses, 
are now starting to have to think about this hybrid world where we where we put face-to-face contact alongside the Zoom calls, as you say, and the, the remote working that we've been doing over the last two years. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, and thanks for raising that question. And I mean, to build upon that, Stephen Wozniak once said that if it wasn't for the home, homebrew clubs, uh, where you know a lot of people in Silicon Valley met and shared, you know, uh, new ideas and computers, um, Apple would probably never have been established as a company. So I think that tells us uh, something as well about the importance of these communities and these interactions uh, that happen uh, often at drinking venues, uh, but often in other places as well, such as the office. But what we do show, I think, in that report is that as automation and offshoring is progressing, the type of work that will be left in advanced economies is primarily creative type of work. I mean, one of the key bottlenecks to automation is still creativity and uh, creative tasks tasks are the ones that really benefit from this in-person interaction. So for me, for example, as, as an academic, when I want to write a new paper or a book, you know, I tend to go to for dinners, for coffees, to conferences, and I want to be in places where I meet a lot of smart people, where I can brainstorm and discuss uh, new ideas. But when I settle on what it is I want to do and I merely want to execute, I'm quite happy to work remotely. Uh, At some point, you know, even it will probably be possible for me to take some of those tasks and subdivide them and offshore them to various places. So if I write a book and I know I need an example on this particular thing, thing, or I need to, you know, a figure using this particular data and so on, I can quite easily uh, crowdsource that and get bids from people all uh, over the world. So these execution tasks, which are more standardized and routinized, um, are gradually becoming also more automated and offshored. And that means that in total employment, creative tasks will expand. A larger share of our labor force will work in you know creative occupations. And by that, that don't just mean you know the arts and creative industries. You know, most industries and occupations have some sort of a creative component uh, to them. And that also means that over the long run, we're likely to see cities becoming more important and uh, not less uh, important. Yes, we have seen during the pandemic a tendency towards more suburbanization and people moving out of the cities and will probably be able to, you know, commute in two to three times uh, a week. And that's great. But I think the long run tendency at the same time is towards more creative employment that is pushing in the other direction. And you talked about your process for writing a book, which is a great way of um, starting to talk a little bit about your your, um, most recent book, The Technology Trap, which takes readers through... Um, the history of a previous technological revolution, the Industrial Revolution. Um, And, you know, we can see with the benefit of hindsight, the really significant benefits for all of us that brought about. And and you you talk about what we can learn from this, if you like, fourth Industrial Revolution that we're all um, living through now. And I wondered if you could give our listeners just a 
a sort of high level summary of the things, some of the things that mirror the experiences of the industrial revolutions and perhaps some of the things that are different? Sure. So I think one of the, the key insights from the book is that if you compare the trajectory of uh, productivity growth and the trajectory of people's wages uh, in the first industrial revolution, which takes off in Britain around 1750, and you know the computer revolution, which begins you know really to take off in the early 1980s with the personal computer, uh, you do see very similar trajectories. So you see that productivity growth increases quite rapidly as a consequence, although with a lag, it takes some time. But you see that sort of wages decouple from productivity growth uh, during this period, which is just another way of saying that the labor share of income is falling, which means that most sort of, of these gains are taking uh, the form of profits. And if we look at, at the lower end of the income distribution, we see that actually people's wages uh, are even falling, both during the first industrial revolution and uh, since uh, the computer revolution. Um, and, you know, for economists, a bit of a puzzle have been in explaining at least the first industrial revolution that, you know, if it didn't improve people's standards of living, why did people agree to it? And the simple answer to that is that they didn't, right? There was a long wave of machinery riots against the spread of the mechanized uh, factory. Um, and that was not just the, uh, the case in Britain, but all uh, across Europe. And I think one key takeaway from the book is that, you know, we shouldn't really take technological progress for granted resistance to technological change has been the norm rather than the exception. And many of the technologies that you know made the Industrial Revolution that have created this enormous upsurge in standards of living uh, over the long run, but a lot of short-run uh, disruption, they could have been invented centuries earlier. And the reason that they didn't was in large part because craft guilds uh, resisted the introduction of them and they have quite significant political clout uh, at the time and were able to bring uh, the spread of uh, mechanization to halt and, and if we look across the world today we see enormous differences in technology adoption right i mean even technologies as fundamental as the internet is not being able and it's not being adopted to the extent, uh, same extent um, everywhere we shouldn't really take the fourth industrial revolution for granted either, especially if technology takes the form that replaces people's jobs and threatens their income, as a lot of our AI technologies um, do. So the key point of the book is that you know the way this plays out uh, depends very much on the political economy um, of technological change. And a key difference there um, today is obviously that ordinary workers are also voters. They no longer have to vote with sticks and stones. They can show up at the general election. And, and what you see in, across Europe and the United States is that where people have lost their jobs, whether it is to globalization or automation, and there's also more political polarization as a consequence of that. And people are more likely to opt for uh, populist political candidates or parties as a consequence of that.
And taking that forward, I guess, into the workplace, lots of our listeners will be in businesses that are considering implementing or increasing automation within their workplaces. Do you have any practical advice about how you bring people on side, how you overcome that sort of pervasive sense of negativity or concern about the impact of automation? I guess it's very much as a question of communication and what you intend to use automation for. So if it's outright for job replacement and, you know, people are going to find themselves without a job down the line as a consequence of that, it's obviously hard. But at the same time, if you are looking at relocation, it's very much about communicating that this is a transition we're going to do over X number of years. You will have these opportunities to reskill for these types of tasks within the company. And historically, if you look at labor management relations, that sort of signaling was often perceived as very important to labor unions in particular to agree to the introduction of uh, automation technologies in the in the workplace and usual demands were all often shorter work week more holidays pay rises uh, etc and if you plan ahead and if you give workers the opportunities to adjust and show them that there are also gains for them from implementing automation technologies then that may well work in um, their favor too. And uh, an example is the introduction of the first automated subway in, in Paris, where unions were very resistant to the introduction of this automation technology. But over time with bonuses and that, you know, incentivized people to switch within the organization and to retrain and so on, uh, it was gradually accepted so there are clearly you know some case studies we can learn from thank you that's really useful i've got a final question it's a question that i'm asking all the guests on our 2022 podcast series um we know that the world of work is going to look really different in 10 years time but probably in ways that we can't predict now but if you had the power to ensure that there'd be one change for the workplace of 2032 what would that one change be Well, my key hope would be that the workplace is interactive, but private at the same time. So I think the worst kind of workplace are these open plan offices where you can't have a private conversation because you're overheard by, you know, 10 or 20 people. So that isn't good for interaction or creativity, and it's not good for concentration either. So I would hope that we, you know, get rid of the uh, open plan offices that too many companies have adopted today. I'm sure that's very useful for some who are probably looking at this moment about how they return to work. Um, thank you so much, Carl. It's been a really interesting conversation. I've, I've loved talking to you. Uh, if any of our listeners would like to find out more, Carl is active on Twitter um, at Carl B. Frey. Or you can visit Carl's website, www.carlbenedict.com. Thank you, Carl. It's been a pleasure.